I'm Dr. Scott Lyons, and you're watching or listening to The Gently Used Human. Ever find yourself questioning the jigsaw puzzle of health content out there on the interwebs, wondering if that extra bite of processed food is really playing roulette with your brain and gut health? And amidst the cacophony of dietary do's and don'ts, pondering why the dietary heroes and villains of the internet seem to switch roles and ideas almost daily. Well, enter Max Lugavere, a dynamo in the realms of health and science journalism, with bestsellers like Genius Food under his belt and the potent voice of the Genius Life podcast. Max doesn't just practice health, he bridges the gap between diet, brain longevity, and delicate culinary choices. Through his lens, the connection between the food we devour and the vitality of our minds isn't just a notion, it's a symphony, a dance, a harmonious interplay. In our conversation today, we'll navigate the waters of health in the modern age, delving into evidence-based fitness strategies, the controversy surrounding carbs, and the golden triad of being happy, healthy, horny, to discover what truly propels us towards a state of well-being. Join us as we disentangle the confusing webs of health advice, champion evidence over antidote, and prioritize authenticity over trends. Let's dig in. Max! What up? <laughs> what up, what up? How's it going? I don't know. How is it going? I hope I'm dressed appropriately. I, I mean, would say you're dressed appropriately for a basketball game. For a basketball game, yeah. <laughs> Which is uh, somewhat different than a podcast. We can go out after this, shoot some hoops. We so. are definitely going to shoot some hoops after I'm this. I'm terrible, but, you know. Oh, case, really? Yeah. yeah, not an athlete. Oh. I support. Well, you support the athletic athletes. endeavors, yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, then this brings me to my first and most important question is, how much can you bench press? Ooh, that is a good question. Yeah. I think 225 for like maybe three reps. Okay. Is my max. 225, that's like a bunch of 45 plates plus. 245s plus. on each side, I think. Yeah. But I'm not like. <laughs> Math is hard these days. <laughs> I consider myself a bit of a closet meathead, but not that much of a meathead where I'm so egoically like tied to my lifts, you know, yeah. if that makes any sense. What is a meathead? A meathead is just somebody who's like very invested in gym culture okay. and working out all the time, which I kind of am. I love it. I mean, it's kind of part of your brand, no? It is part of my brand a little bit, yeah. Well, it's interesting because my quote-unquote brand has transitioned a bit where I started really out in this space talking primarily about the prevention of chronic disease, brain yeah. health, which is something I'm super passionate about. But I've always been a big fitness nerd. So, yeah, so I've been kind of like outing myself more and more, especially as of late with regard to my passion for, yeah, lifting weights and I guess like bodybuilding style fitness regimens and science, et cetera. I mean, you cover a lot of ground in the terms of like health and wellness. Yeah. And maybe we can start with the broader question of like, what is being healthy? What is being healthy? <laughs> like, what is that? I've heard the term. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's so many different ways to approach it. There's emotional health, there's spiritual health, there's social health. And these are all, I think, important determinants ultimately of your health. But for me, I really am interested in nutrition and the more tactile aspects of one's lifestyle that can modulate our risk for, not just our risk for disease in the long term, yeah. But how we feel in the present moment, I think that's super important. A lot of people are walking around just not feeling that great. I mean, today, statistically, people are in, you know, there's widespread metabolic illness, widespread obesity and the like. And so I think these are all important. And the approach that I like to take, I like to tackle these topics from the nutrition side, just yeah. because I'm personally a big nutrition nerd. So with that in mind, like, how does one know if they're healthy? Because it's kind of like we can tell people what to do to be healthy, yeah. from our opinion. But like, how do they know when they've gotten there? Yeah, well, I mean... <laughs> have you arrived? Have you arrived? I think, I mean, it might sound a little bit trite, but I think, yeah. you know, the three H's, if you're hungry, if you're happy, and if you're horny, that's uh -huh. a pretty good, yeah. That's a pretty good, like, subjective litmus test. Yeah. Hold on, let me check my three H's. Yeah, how are you doing? I'm... 3-H-ing it. You're 3-H-ing it. Yeah. I love it. That's great. How are your 3-H's? I'm pretty good. Yeah. I'm pretty good in that department. Yeah. Because if you think about it, yeah. if you're happy, when an animal is inflamed, we're now starting to see the connection between mental states mm -hmm. and our, 
you know, hard empirical, you know, biomarkers that are associated with chronic disease, like inflammation and things like that. There's a lot more research that needs to be done, but from the standpoint of our subjective sense of how we're feeling, I mean, there is now a connection being made between, for example, clinical depression and inflammation. There's the inflammatory cytokine model of depression. And when an animal is sick, when an animal is under inflammatory duress, it exhibits symptoms that in a human look a lot like depression. So these sickness behaviors, you know, an animal will retreat from the herd, ex show less interest in socializing, mm -hmm. cease to groom itself. It also, its appetite, you know, it has less of an appetite. And so these are all kind of, we can see these features in humans. And I think now it's starting to come to the forefront that at least for a subset of the depressed population, there's this, this link between, you know, our moods and inflammation. So from that standpoint, I think I'm pretty good. Generally, I have a pretty even killed mood. Mm -hmm. I think I have a pretty good appetite. You know, if you're sick, you tend like the appetite yeah. typically goes, right? And then from a libido standpoint, I mean, yeah. I think I'm pretty good, you know, so. No one's complaining. No one's complaining. <laughs> yeah. Phew. <laughs> yeah. The, I mean, we the, did get some Yelp emails about all, that. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> On your behalf. Yeah. Yeah. But I told them to back off. Back off. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah I yeah. do yeah. tend to get trolled, so I don't know. I mean. Oh, we're going to talk about that today. Are we? Okay. Cool. But what do you get trolled most about? Well, about that? Uh, about no, your libido? Uh, no, not about the libido. No. no okay. Actually, my testosterone is pretty good. Like, and yeah. people, yeah, I think I don't have a single peer, and I'm not even being hyperbolic. The majority of my peers today are on some kind of TRT. Yeah, yeah. But I'm not. Like, my total testosterone is in the high normal range. My free T is in the high normal range. And I, I attribute that largely to my diet and lifestyle. Was it that way? Because at some point you didn't have this lifestyle or the certain yeah. focus on nutrition. Correct. Which we're going to get yeah, into. But, but I've always been, I've always, for as long as I can remember, I've been a nutrition nerd. Like my high yeah. school senior thesis I wrote on creatine, which is now everybody's <laughs> talking about creatine. You were doing creatine before it was cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I was in high school, I remember reading a book called The Ketogenic Diet by Lyle McDonald, which is still considered, you know, one of these like gold standard foundational books exploring the science of ketogenic dieting. And so, yeah, I've been into this for as long as I can remember. I didn't choose the medical school route. I didn't go through the academic path because I realized at some point in my 20s that I was also like creative and a storyteller and I really was excited to explore that side of myself. And I was really grateful that I had parents that allowed me to do that. They didn't push me into any one career choice. And so that kind of in a you know, led to me becoming a journalist. I got to work for Al Gore for six years. I was on TV in the US on a TV network called Current TV. I did that. And then my mom became sick and I, and sort of it brought all of my, you know, interests, sort of everything had kind of in a circuitous way come full circle where a loved one and as a journalist, it had given me, my training as a journalist, it had given me the tools to investigate why this, you know, would have happened to my mom. Mm. And that has kind of led to everything that it is that I'm, that I'm doing today. So that was a big driver for you. It I was, mean, yeah. it sounds like there was already some interest in that direction, but it, you know, when your mom got sick, there was a lot of drive. Yeah. yeah I mean, I was really interested in health and health science. Mm -hmm. And again, for a long time, and it's the kind of thing where there were indicators in my life that I kind of, that made me think that I had some kind of aptitude for understanding and communicating ideas related to nutrition and science, like my friends would always come to me for advice and things like that, which is, I'm not saying is in any way a uh, replacement for an actual education on these topics. But I had a good way, I think, of like articulating these ideas and I had a very reasonable and, and practical attitude like in that regard. And also, I, I've just always been kind of reading and researching and a lot of people, you know, some people like to read works of fiction, some people like to, you know, listen to comedy podcasts. I've always been really interested in the nonfiction world and particularly nutrition, fitness, science. And originally it was probably from a standpoint of both fascination, but also vanity, like mm -hmm. interested in how I can eat and live in a way that's going to, you know, boost my own confidence and make me look better in the mirror. And, you know, all the kind of things that like as a young person, you're naturally interested in, you know, as you tr attempt to ascend the mating ladder, you know. That third age. Yeah, that third age, you know, looking out for the third <laughs> age and like procuring the best opportunities possible. But then when my mom became sick, everything else kind of like faded to the background and I became singularly fixated on trying to understand why people get sick. Was part of that in hopes to help her heal? Yeah, for sure. But 
one of the things that I learned that was really heartbreaking, but ultimately provided the call to action that I needed to start to advocate on this topic in a more serious way was I learned that dementia often begins in the brain decades prior to the emergence of symptoms. And so it was a little bit deflating when I learned that because it made me realize that, you know, my mom who had already been suffering likely for years at that point, unbeknownst to me and my family, that prevention really is sort of the most important angle from which to approach you know, this condition, you know, this category of conditions. So it's less about reversing the effects. Correct. And more about what you've learned is more about how do we do prevention. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's the same with anything. It's like if you have, if you, you know, develop cancer, it's not that that tumor grew overnight, right? Yeah. If you have a heart attack, you know, atherosclerosis didn't, you know, begin building in your arteries overnight. You know, yeah. it's like these are years, if not decades long disease processes. And the brain is no different, you know, with mm. a condition like Alzheimer's disease, which my mom didn't have. My mom had another form of dementia, but a much more rare form of dementia. And so, yeah, so, you know, there was a degree of hope that I lost with regard to my mom, although I did try my best to, you know, to get her on a fitness regimen and the like. And there is data that the earlier in the course of a disease a person is, you know, maybe there is some degree of you know, improvement that might be seen with like a ketogenic diet and maybe you can potentially slow its progression with vigorous exercise and the like, but ultimately my mom passed. And, and so, yeah, so I've just really, you know, like for me, for as long as I've been in the space, it's really been about like advocating about these topics, prevention and, and the like for younger people, which is where I really think we can move the needle. Mm. When she passed and as that was the driver before, did the drive shift? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think like I've certainly evolved and I, I'm a life learner and I'm, so I'm always, in, you know, investigating this topic. And I think, you know, I think like the one of the best things that you could do for your health to prevent not just brain disease, but cardiovascular disease and, and cancer and, you know, all the kinds of non-communicable chronic diseases that people are now suffering from today en masse, it's really about building your own sort of personal robustness and resilience. And that just so happens to parlay into my own personal interests which are fitness and health, you know? So, I mean, I go to the gym and I work out and again, I'm like, you know, I'm busting my butt, you know, in the gym with like the same as like, you know, from the outside, it might appear as though my efforts are like just any other person who's interested in fitness, but I like knowing and it's incredibly motivating knowing that the same things that I'm doing that are going to increase my strength, my muscle strength and my metabolic health also are going to, are potentially playing a role in shielding my brain from degeneration years down the line. So... Yeah, I can and see. also cancer prevention and like exercise, for example, is just medicine in so many different regards. Yeah, I can see how that's really like a holistic view of like. Yeah. In addition to just going in because for the aesthetic, it's also like it does something to know all the additional benefits yeah. it has. Yeah, and it's like yeah. the diet that I think is ideal from the standpoint of the brain isn't mm -hmm. really any different from the diet that's likely ideal from the standpoint of cardiovascular health, right. from metabolic health, from, you know, your body composition. I think everything is intrinsically related. Like we're starting to see now that what's good for a topic that I've become increasingly interested in is like oral health, like the oral microbiome and dental mm -hmm. health and how that's all related. Like there's no diet that's going to, like if you're eating a diet that's promotive of, for example, tooth decay and periodontis and like, you know, like poor oral health, I mean, we're starting to see now that that same diet is actually probably predisposing you to hypertension mm. and predisposing you to systemic inflammation and, and the like. So everything's, you know, incredibly related. And I don't pretend to have all the answers, but I love exploring those connections. And, you know, everything I read just further cements that, that notion that everything is so connected. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I love of your many skill sets, including, you know, bench pressing 240, is Two, it now? 225, 225. Not uh, quite 240 okay. yet, but... So, someday, yeah, someday. Someday, yeah. I'll help you out. <laughs> I could use a spot occasionally. Uh, yeah. Where are you, Scott? I'm all over the place, mm. but I'll find you. I'll find you. All right. You know, what I appreciate of your skill sets is to take, I mean, it, this shit's complex. Yeah. Especially I find like, I don't know about you, but when I was in school, especially when we got to like nutrition and all the details in the physiology of it, I was, it was just like too much, Interesting. too yeah. much for me. And something I really appreciate is how you make it accessible. Hmm. Like I find maybe, you know, background as a journalist, it makes sense. Like you gather so much data and then you distill it in a way that's accessible. Yeah. Light sizable. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my brain works kind of like a light switch. Like I have yeah. a very obsessive brain uh -huh. about the things that I'm 
passionately interested in. And yeah. with regard to nutrition, exercise, I almost have like a photographic memory mm -hmm. in that regard. But I really struggle to focus on things that I'm not super interested in. So for me, like in school, that led to very mediocre academic performance. Because, for example, the classes that everybody would take to get the A in, yeah. I wasn't interested in. And so I'd get D's in them. I, you, like I wouldn't study. You know, I would always procrastinate. I would barely show up to class. And yet the harder classes, but the classes that I was interested in, I would get A's in. So for example, I A's in biology, A's in chemistry. But overall, my overall GPA was, you know, just not super competitive. And it was a struggle for me, honestly. So yeah. And so that's why, you know, I've just, I have gravitated to nutrition. And, and I do think as a journalist, as a storyteller, you are equipped with the skills to connect dots that are not always connected if you have you know, or at least from my vantage point that are not always connected, particularly for, you know, when people have a more formal education in the field. For example, medical doctors are trained to be technicians, essentially, right? They're there to keep you from dying, which is incredibly important, obviously, right? If you're having symptoms, they know how best to treat those symptoms with their increasingly pharmacologically informed education, right? Yeah. But no stigma against that. Like if I need a drug, like for whatever reason, I'll take it, you know? Yeah, yeah. PhDs are also, obviously, they have a certain skill set, but PhDs typically are hyper-focused on their one domain, yeah, right? for sure. And so, I found that it really did take a storyteller, essentially, to be able to connect all the dots. And I don't see that being done very often. And also, every new data point that I am able to glean from the literature integrates itself, at least for me, in my brain, into the larger story, the larger narrative. And so I think that's part of the reason why I'm able to retain like, you know, all the information that I'm seemingly able to retain. I love that. I really appreciate it. It's, it's that sense. It's more of the holding the constellation. There you go. As opposed to just like grabbing one star and saying, this is it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like to me, it's all just like part of like this like larger story. Yeah. What would you say are like some of your top three hot to trot things that you're super focused on, excited about in this moment in time? Well, again, I've like recently become, I've developed a renewed fervor with regard to evidence-based like fitness and specifically like muscle hypertrophy. And, you know, there's been a lot of, I've primarily been mainly interested in nutrition, but I've recently gone down the rabbit hole. I don't consider myself a fitness expert, but I definitely like, I know where to look when I have a question, you know, like a research Google. question. Yeah. Google. <laughs> Well, I know where to look too. Yeah, I mean, well, Google. <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah, you where can, do you look? Well, I look on Google. You can actually like plug. This is so what I do when I'm yeah. researching a given topic. You plug in whatever it is that you want to research, yeah. and you can also into the Google search bar, add in site colon nih.gov, yeah. and it enables you to search PubMed with Google, which is oh. super super useful. Yeah, or you could just go straight to PubMed. Yeah, and I follow a bunch of people on social media who are like evidence-based fitness practitioners and, you know, so I'm reading PubMed. I'm like, I think following all the right people in the space. Um, and, and through my podcast, I've had the ability to, to talk to people who are like really highly regarded in that space. But yeah, so one of the things I'm really interested in is like this, you know, is like how to optimize the times that we spend in the gym, right? For the greatest gains. And so one of the things that a lot of people have been talking about, and there's been increasing empirical evidence to show that this is really potentially beneficial is, you know, exercising with a full range of motion and particularly slowing down and focusing on the eccentric portion of a movement. So like... Can you break that down for the... Yeah. So basically a lot of people, for example, when bench pressing, they yeah. focus on getting the weight up, right? Mm -hmm. As if that's like the most important aspect of the movement. And sure, it's important. Yeah. But we're... I think the research is starting to show that by focusing really on the eccentric portion, so when the weight mm -hmm. is actually coming down, yeah. so slowing down on that portion of the movement, mm -hmm. and particularly when you're, you know, for example, in the case of a bench press, your pectoral muscles are in the most stretched position, Yeah, you see a lot of what's called hypertrophic stimulus in that particular portion of the movement. And so you can apply that to pretty much every single exercise. Uh -huh. And so since that kind of clicked for me and I've been utilizing that with pretty much every single lift in the gym, I've seen a lot of like quote-unquote gains, you know, from that. Yeah, you look swole. Thanks, man. <laughs> I just learned that word. Yeah? You oh, yeah. swole? Yeah, I just learned it this morning. Yeah, I mean, I like gym culture. I can't <laughs> lie. You know, chasing gains, getting swole, it's all super fun to me. What does that actually mean, getting swole? I heard swole. I heard someone say it and I was like, I bet yeah. I'm going to bring that up today. You're pretty swole. You're pretty swole. Oh, thanks, But man. what does it mean? 
swollen, I think, a is swollen. like, maybe is, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of gross, but yeah, people want to like- I'm going like, to just say, hey, you look, hey, bro, you look really swollen today. So, no, I don't know about that, but swole is a compliment. Swole, swole is, is a compliment, compliment yeah. I know, but if it means swollen. Yeah, or like, man, you're getting some gains. I could see, you know, it's yeah. like- Music to anybody's. I actually posted a for my forty first birthday. Posted a shirtless selfie of myself on social media. How'd it go? Viral. There were like three commenters. Yeah. And granted, they're crazy because nobody who actually knows about any of this stuff would ever think that I was anything but totally natural. Yeah. But at least like three commenters were like, and it made me feel really good. Like, yeah. Like Max is not natty or something like that. And I was not like, natty. Not natty. What's know? that mean? Not natty means like not natural. Like I'm all augmented. Oh, <laughs> I'm using like performance enhancing drugs or whatever. Yeah. Which I'm absolutely not. And I don't even look like I am. Like, again, I'm not yeah. saying that I look like I'm not natty. I'm 100% natty. But the fact that I got like three, you know, commenters claiming. You look natty swole, yo. Natty swole, yo. Yeah, yeah. That's a compliment. Okay. So, you got three comments that sort of suggested that you were not natty. Yeah. And it made my day. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. I definitely look like I'm, you know. But the thing is like. What's empowering yeah. is that I think if you have patience yeah. and discipline yeah. and consistently show up, it's not like everything needs to be perfect, right? Like I don't have some kind of like perfect magical diet. I just – I go to the gym a lot and I like put in the work and my diet is pretty good. What does that mean good? Well, I focus on protein. Uh, you know, okay. every day I'm hitting a certain protein target and, you know, I didn't come from a place of having great genes and I'm not an athlete. But it's like anybody with doing the work, like people can look better than their wildest dreams. It's just you have to like dedicate yourself to it. And I know everybody's busy today. We live in a world and especially me, like I have a lot of quote unquote privilege in the sense that, you know, I'm a bit of a lifestyle entrepreneur. I get to make my own schedule. So it's easier probably for me than most. I don't have any kids. I don't have family. But yeah, it's like, you know, you put in the work and sooner or later, you'll be the one in your friend group that everybody says has like good genes, you know? Mm. That's what it ultimately comes down to. It's just putting in the work. I mean, could we say that putting in the work plus there's some hacks? Yeah, I mean, because the hack is like eating enough protein every day, avoiding ultra processed junk food, which now typifies 60% of the standard you well, know, American. Really? Yeah, your average adult today, 60% of the calories that they consume comes from ultra processed foods. Like you know? what? Like the kinds of foods that you typically find in the aisles of the supermarkets, like shelf stable, package processed Oh, shit. Snack foods and things like that. 73% of the supermarket is, is comprised of these foods, right? Is there like a rule like if it's three ingredients it's, or more, it's like ultra processed? There's no like number of ingredients, but in general, yeah, the more ingredients a food item has, like the more likely it is to be an ultra processed food. Yeah, that's a pretty good. Okay. Because one of the defining characteristics of an ultra processed food, according to the NOVA food categorization system, which is where this term originally was defined out of South America yeah. by the this NOVA scoring system, an ultra processed food isn't a food that your average person could reasonably make in their own, like in the average kitchen. Yeah. And so the more ingredients a food product has, the more likely it is to be ultra processed. Yeah. The best foods to eat are single ingredient foods, right? Like steak, fish, avocados, eggs, dark leafy greens, single ingredient foods. So I try to base my diet around those. And yeah, ultra processed foods do for me sneak in, but they probably make up about 10 to 20% of my diet as opposed to 60%. Oh, wow. That's a significant difference than yeah. the general populace. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I eat very few ultra processed foods. I mean, I think like... What are your cheats? You know, I don't even know. I mean, I like there's like some Quest protein chips that I enjoy, but those are probably even better than the vast majority of ultra processed foods like because okay. they're made of protein powder. What else do I like? Yeah, I don't – very few. I eat very few ultra processed foods. I'm pretty much like – I enjoy cooking. I eat a largely whole foods diet. And I think that's one of the hacks because it helps to regulate your hunger in a really powerful way. I try to prioritize protein. Yeah. Every meal for me, every snack is like – fairly protein centric. I don't eat like super low carb or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I, eat, I eat a fair amount of carbohydrates. Yeah. So I try to lead with like food quality. Food quality is something that, that I think is like pretty important. I want to take a moment to give a loud shout out to the Embody Lab, which is ugh, one of the most incredible resources for body-based and somatic therapies. This show is all about healing and the Embody Lab does exactly that. 
Whether you're on your own journey of transformation and discovery or enhancing your skill sets in your career as like a coach or a therapist, a body worker, or really any career where you are supporting other gently used humans, the Embody Lab is your place for deep, inspiring and impactful workshops, certificates, masterclasses, and an incredible community of like-minded folks. I love the Embody Lab, and so do so many other people that call it a platform to come home to over and over again. The Embody Lab is giving my listeners an exclusive offer, a one-time 10% off code to enhance your embodied well-being. All you have to do is go to theembodylab.com and use the code GENTLYUSE10 at checkout. And so you were saying earlier that the sort of diet that you choose for maybe aesthetics or also just feeling better is also related to the same diet you would choose for brain function. Exactly. Yeah. Can you say more about that? I want to get my brain working. Yeah. So, I mean, what we're starting to see is that working out isn't like, it's not purely like you might be doing it for aesthetics. Yeah. And there are unhealthy ways to chase aesthetics. Yeah. But if you're to chase health, like my friends at, at Mind Pump always say, chase health and aesthetics follow. Like, yeah, if you, like, obviously there's a lot of people on social media with fantastic bodies and they're not all attaining those bodies in healthful ways, right? But like, you can achieve a fantastic body and attain, you know, a fairly good, you know, like fairly, you know, a high degree of strength and mobility and all, you know, all the metrics that really matter, eating a, a very healthful diet and that same diet and those same activities that you do also lend themselves, I think, to longevity in a really powerful way. Like we see now that like muscles, like leg strength is associated with cognitive function and really? brain volume. Yeah. Well, because for one, most people today have some degree of metabolic illness. Yeah. And having bigger, stronger muscles is like one of the best antidotes to metabolic illness because exercise, resistance training in particular, is one of the best ways to resensitize your body to the hormone insulin. So a lot of people suffer from insulin resistance. Lifting weights, just like contracting your muscles is a great way to basically like reverse that process. And the fact that there's so much metabolic illness, first of all, can you just break that down for me? No. (laughs) Other people, but you know, and then I'm curious after you to define it, like, why? Why are we seeing such a rise in metabolic illness? So metabolic illness is the way that it's defined in like when I say, for example, most people, 90% of people have some component of metabolic illness. Metabolic syndrome is a constellation of features that a physician might diagnose if, for example, you have chronically elevated triglycerides, mm-hmm. you have high LDL cholesterol and low H. Actually, LDL cholesterol is not part of the diagnostic criteria, if I recall correctly. It's low HDL. If you have high blood pressure, if you have excess visceral adiposity, so an oversized waist, yeah. that fat storage in that area is particularly dangerous as opposed to subcutaneous fat that you might carry in your like arms or on your thighs. Mm-hmm. It's that visceral adiposity that's particularly dangerous. So somebody might not have full-blown type 2 diabetes or even pre-diabetes, but if they have a component of that, you know, that constellation of symptoms then, you know, if they have, you know, I think, I don't know what the diagnostic criteria is exactly. Again, I'm not a medical doctor, but it's, if you have a component of that, then chances are something, there's some kind of gum in the works in terms of how your body is able to, in terms of how your body is metabolizing energy, essentially. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it does come down to what's sometimes referred to as energy toxicity, which could be thought of as we're simply eating too much. But what's causing us to eat as much as we're eating. Well, it's the ultra-processed food environment, which drives overconsumption in and of itself. Because of the additives that make you desire more or what in it? Yeah. It's not necessarily additives. It's, you know, typically some people like to refer to it as like the Dorito effect. You bring together sugar, fat, salt, and it makes a food product. It gives a food product the characteristic known as hyperpalatability. Uh-huh. So we tend to overconsume these foods. Probably also has something to do with the rate at which we're able to eat these foods because they're so heavily processed. We also absorb them really rapidly. So 
Yeah, I mean, there's good data now from like NIH funded data that shows that when you're essentially given access to an ultra processed food diet and you're allowed to eat ad libitum, so like to yeah. a point of satiety, you tend to overconsume energy calories by about 500 additional calories. So the same population, you put them on a minimally processed food diet and they tend to under-consume by about 300 calories. So it's like that's an 800-calorie swing yeah. determined exclusively by the quality of the food that a person is eating. Yeah. And again, we live in like a world where our food environment is predominantly ultra-processed. And if that's what people are eating every day, I mean, that's like, you know, if the general population is anything like what was shown in this crossover NIH trial then your average person, we all want to eat to satiety, right? That's like typically we tend to eat to satiety. Then your average person today is consuming about 500 additional calories every single day. You do that every single day over the span of a week, that's a pound of fat gain. Mm -hmm. So it's no wonder why people are so like, I mean, staggering rates of obesity and then ultimately why we're seeing, I think, this, you know. The metabolic illness. Epidemic of metabolic illness. Yeah. Interesting. Is there any correlation between like, I don't know, ultra processed foods and what we might call clean foods and like the mindfulness of it, because there's something as you're talking about, like we're consuming more of it. It's, it almost sounds like we're not home to check in with ourselves in relation to what we're eating. Yeah. I mean, th there's a lot that go into it, right? I mean, again, the eating rate, there's time that it takes for our stomachs to register and our brains ultimately to register that we have eaten a bolus of food, right? But these foods that like we're able to just like, they're essentially pre-digested. It just doesn't give us the same level of satiety, right? That like a whole food, right? Like, I mean, you chew through a steak or a kale salad. It takes time, right? You're utili utilizing your muscles, the muscles of your jaw. It gives your, you know, it's like not your stomach has to pump out all these digestive enzymes and stomach acid. And there's like, there are all these processes that go into it. But you take something like a wheat snack, right, that's like pulverized and takes your body no effort at all to chew and to assimilate. And a lot of those satiety signals are, are essentially lost. Mm. And then you take the fact that we live in like this like chronically distracting world now where we eat with our smartphones, right? And there are studies that show that when we're distracted while we're eating, we tend to consume about 15% more calories. So... It's like this this constellation of things. We're chronically distracted. Our food environment is ultra processed. Also, I mean, we're all chronically stressed out. We're chronically underslept. When you're underslept, you tend to consume about 400 additional calories on the day that you're underslept, right? Yeah. So there are all these variables and it's like the it's created the perfect storm. And I think that's why we're seeing such staggering rates of, of obesity. Like the default setting for any organism is health, right? Mm. Like we all deserve to be healthy and to be in, you know, reasonably good shape and strong and robust and resilient. And you look at parts of the world like, I mean, I hate to reference the blue zones because so much has been made about their dietary pattern. It's about their lifestyles, right? They're like, they're in this, they tend to have food environments that are less processed. They're more engaged socially. They're less distracted by technology. And I think we, you know, if we can get back even like a little bit to what, you know, that sort of lifestyle is like, I think we'd, it would do our health great benefit. Yeah. I've read a lot of studies how the technology is essentially usurping us of our ability to attend to our own physiological cues. Mm. And it's like we're a sailboat without a rudder anymore. I like that. And we are being in the distraction. We just are not, again, we're not attending to these cues to make decisions based on what is presently happening. Mm. And the consequences are you know, consuming too much or not getting enough actual nu nutrients, making behaviors and choices that are not optimal to our well-being. Yeah. Saying things to friends that are not optimal to our friendships, et cetera. Oh, yeah. Because we're not really here in relation to what's happening. Totally. Yeah. And I mean, I have a pretty good lifestyle in the sense that I get to wake up when I want for the most part. I don't have, I mean, I've definitely had a lot of stress in my life with my mom and all yeah. that stuff. But like at this point in my life, I'm pretty happy in the sense I'm not, I don't really feel like I'm chronically stressed out. I get to sleep as much as I want. And so I feel pretty lucky, but still there are pressures, right? Like I'm on social media probably more than I should be. But that being said, you know, I just try to focus on, I try to focus on the things that I can control. And mm. my food quality, you know, I'm able to focus on that. I'm able to focus on protein, which we know is the most satiating 
of the macronutrients. So whatever it is, you know, on my plate, even if I'm traveling, if I'm not in my home city, by focusing on protein, that's a really great way to make sure that my satiety, you know, checkpoints in my body are functioning at least physiologically in a way that's appropriate for me. And it helps me to weed out the ultra processed stuff and the cravings that I think I would otherwise have if I didn't make protein such a, you know, such a driving force of my dietary pattern. Mm. I want to bring up like a social, economical, political point too around accessibility to quality food. Cool. And because I was recently schooled by my amazing sister who I was like, you know, I, I was at her house and her kids were eating super ultra processed foods. And in the past I had said something and I was like, can we go shopping? I'll get them carrots and cucumbers. And like, she's like, you don't understand. <laughs> And I was like, I understand, you know, like I went to school for this shit. Like, <laughs> I think I understand. And like, there was a reality check of just when she brought me to the grocery store and, and we went to Whole Foods first Yeah. and she was like, this is the price for this. And mm. I was like, okay. And then she brought me to her grocery store and she was like, this is the price for this. It's not organic, but this is what's actually affordable for most individuals in America. Hmm. And I was like, it's not like I was totally out of reality check, but yeah. like I have made such, you know, like since I was younger and extremely focused on what I eat, partly because I was a dancer or what I didn't eat and yeah. then what I did eat. Yeah. And so like recognizing like, okay, I'm going to put more of my budget towards food and less towards like I never went drinking. I didn't smoke. Like I didn't go out partying. And so like I put that budget towards that. So I didn't have that reality check that she like, basically punched me in my face with, mm. I've been like, the accessibility to quality food is actually much harder than we might think. Yeah. It's, it's like, fuck. Yeah, <laughs> you're absolutely right. And like, you know, I'm not a parent, so I don't claim to know what that pressure is like. But yeah. I think with a little bit of planning and knowledge, mm -hmm. knowledge is power, okay. I think that goes a long way. And there are a lot of misconceptions, I think, about what it means to eat healthily. Like, first of all, we can't let perfect be the enemy of the good. And so... Yeah, organic is great if you can afford it, but you don't need to eat organic. Like, you know, I think in a perfect world, everything would be organic, right? And we wouldn't have this dichotomy between conventional and, or and organic. And I think organic from an environmental standpoint makes a ton of sense. And, you know, there are higher levels of certain phytochemicals in organic produce that are reduced in conventional because conventional doesn't have to, the conventional plants don't necessarily have to fend for themselves the way an organic plant does. But those are kind of hard to quantify. And at the end of the day, you know, if all you have access to and all you can afford is conventional, then you should still buy conventional, you know, just rinse your food well. When I'm, you know, home, I try to bring only, for example, grass-fed, grass-finished beef into my house, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which can be more expensive, certainly. But even conventional beef, as much as I loathe the factory farm system, and I think it's awful from an environmental standpoint and an animal welfare standpoint, even conventionally produced red meat is still, I think, an incredibly healthy food. But now on social media, you know, whether it's covert vegan activists or even, you know, our most trusted medical institutions who say red meat is like this, you know, unhealthful food, it's an incredibly healthy food, particularly when compared to what most children are eating, which is 70%. It's even in a higher proportion than for adults. It's 70% ultra-processed foods. So you take a piece of lean red meat and you compare it to whatever it is that your kids are probably already eating, and it's a fantastic food. I made it a point actually to go to, it was like a year and a half ago, I think, to a 99 cent store in my neighborhood. And I found there was plenty of things that I was able to find like at the 99 cent store that are healthful, you know, whether it's like canned fish or, you know, pre-cooked chicken and can like there are so many options, I think, that you just have to like open your eyes and like, you know, I think with increased knowledge, people will be able to better identify what's healthful and what's just like fluff. Costco now, you can find grass-fed, grass-finished beef. You can find, I mean, Costco is a great place to go and source, you know, buying in bulk healthy foods. Even Walmart now has like organic, grass-fed, grass-finished, wild salmon, things like that, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think it's just about like people need to know. And ultimately, everybody pays their tab at some point. You can either, <laughs> there's a saying, you can either, yeah, yeah, you can either pay the farmer today yeah. or pay pharma later. I know it's kind of, that's like an aggressive statement, right? But I'm into aggressive. Huh? Break it down. Yeah. I mean, it's like <laughs> you can either spend more upfront to yeah. buy healthier food upfront and to take care of your body upfront, right? Or you're going to have increased healthcare costs later down the road.
agree so much. And I think that's so hard for so many of us to look at the value. I'm guilty of it too, but like I wait till something's bad to treat it mm. as opposed to like, you know, attending to things ahead of time where you can't see it, where it hasn't happened. It's just, there's something internal for many of us that it, we're less driven towards it for. Yeah. It. I mean, I think more and more, and there's something about fear mongling that like doing propaganda basically, which is both, I think, fucked up and helpful. That's the nuance of life, which is like, okay, it's hard to maybe move the needle forward ahead of time. And so some fear mongling of going like, hey, you either pay the price now or you pay it later is helpful. It's an intense statement, yeah. but it can be really helpful. And it can also be exactly what it is, which is... I'm not saying you're fear-mongling, but like it can scare people off. Yeah, I don't think that fear is the way to instill healthy habits and to compel people to make better choices. But I think it's like if you want average health today, yeah. then do average things, right? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, average health today is not health at all. It's actually, you know, it's quite... Like, we live in a state of despair in terms of public health. And so if that's what you want, then, you know, then continue to go about your day, you know, doing what it is that, you know, everybody else is doing. But I think to achieve a healthier state and to kind of step off the people mover that seemingly is pulling us all towards chronic disease, you have to do things a little bit differently. And yeah, that's where I think like just arming yourself with knowledge plays a really, really important role. Here's a tricky question. Whose knowledge? Whose knowledge? <laughs> That is a tricky question because today there's like all these different like opinions and, yeah. you know, alternative facts, right? Fly yeah. like it's like, well, I've got the facts. No, I've got the facts. You see on social media, I mean, even today, you know, depending on whose page you're on, it's like eggs are either the healthiest thing ever or they're feeding viruses and bacteria and they're the worst thing. They're promotive. Exactly. So, yeah, I think it. you have to really find people who you think are credible and trustworthy. And yeah, I think it's very hard because even people who are credible – I think they're not necessarily on social media to be helpful. They're on social media to chase clout, you know, like they're humans at the end of the day. And so I don't know. I mean, I, I think I'm pretty good at what I do. And, you know, I think that like part of why people have gravitated to my work is because they know where it is that I'm coming from, mm -hmm. which I think is really important. I think like a person's motivation is really important with regard to knowing whether or not a person is trustworthy. And you know, and, and also we have to have like the understanding that we're all fallible humans at the end of the day. Like, and I do my best to show my audience where my thinking has evolved. And I try to be very transparent about where I've perhaps been wrong in the past. Oh. Yeah. Like what? Well, I mean, I'm always evolved. I don't think there's anything that I've necessarily been wrong about. But I think that like as the science continues to evolve and as my own thinking about certain topics has evolved, like I like to bring my audience along for the journey with me because mm -hmm. I'm, again, a life learner and I don't have all the answers, but I'm just as much invested in this and my own personal health as anybody. And I try to be as transparent about that as I can. But for example, one area where, you know, I think I've changed a bit. Well, there's like, there's two. And I, I guess like one of them is I used to be really kind of like not into dairy, for example. Like uh -huh. I, used to, I think I'd adopted at some point a lot of the dogmatic thinking about dairy that you sometimes see in the wellness world, that like dairy is not a clean food or that dairy is inflammatory. Yeah. 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 I remember that. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of people who are dairy sensitive, so I'm not saying that everybody needs to go out and start stocking up on dairy, but I think if you react well to dairy, it is an incredibly nutrient-dense food. And I'm not funded in any way by the dairy industry or anything like that, but I've The Gently Used Human brought to you by the dairy industry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I just, I started, you know, I mean, for me, it started with whey protein, which is an incredibly nutrient-dense food. And I started like eating more. We now see that like fermented dairy is incredibly healthful. So I started integrating more of that. And, but I did come from a place where I had an anti-dairy bias, you know? And then the other thing is I probably had more of a low carb bias earlier on. I mean, if, even if you, like, if you go to my Wikipedia page, somebody out there put on my Wikipedia page within the first sentence that I'm a low carb diet advocate, maybe because in the past I was a bit of a low carb diet advocate, which I wasn't really, even though I have talked about the ketogenic diet many times as a potential therapeutic intervention for people with neurological mm -hmm. problems. You know, I definitely had a degree of like carb phobia that I think, you know, was maybe instilled in me by the, what's 
referred to as the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity, which basically stipulates that insulin is the driving factor of fat gain and things like that, which we now know isn't really doesn't really play a role in terms of your overall like how much fat you're carrying. It's really focusing on insulin is really putting the cart before the horse and it's about ultimately energy balance. And so I've kind of changed my tune there where now I've been eating a lot more carbohydrates and actually I found them to be very helpful in terms of not just, you know, getting stronger in the gym, but also in helping to promote fat loss. Mm. So yeah, I've become very like pro-carb. And these are all things that like I think, you know, they all illustrate where I've evolved and I think by being transparent about that, it's really important. It's a really important part of the like science communication thing, you know. Do you feel like you have that permission being an influencer and, and such to evolve? As Definitely. opposed to staying in a specific yeah. rigidity. Yeah. yeah. I don't feel like I see a lot of these people that get so mired in their own dogma, their own shtick. You know, like for example, like a lot of carnivore dieters, you know, or even vegans, like public facing vegan advocates. You know, you you hear these stories all the time of like, you know, big vegan YouTuber, you know, comes out as like eating fish on weekends and things like that. And there's like this uproar, you know, but I've never really associated too closely with any one diet tribe. And I think that's part of what gives me the latitude to kind of feel things out and to change as the science evolves. I mean, I think like I definitely appreciate the paleo diet because I think, you know, I mean, obviously there's a lot of paleo approved junk foods in supermarkets these days, but it's interesting how that sort of, I've yeah. noticed that trend too of like, yeah. here's the quote unquote healthy diet and now we have the junk food for that quote unquote. I know. Like it's, the healthy diet or the junk food for the Mediterranean diet. There you go. Yeah. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, I think like the, at the core of the paleo diet, it's a, yeah. it's about food quality, which I yeah. definitely appreciate, you know, yeah. but also the paleo diet issues legumes and beans and things like that, which I think are very healthful foods. So I'm not like a paleo dieter either, you know, I think like the ketogenic diet is an incredibly important thing that we need to be talking about and continue researching, but I'm not on a ketogenic diet. So yeah, I think it's really important to always be willing to challenge your biases and your assumptions and your beliefs. And yeah, I think I'm doing I hope I'm doing a good job. I hope so too. In that regard, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This show is also brought to you by the absolutely stunning and powerful tools for transformation that are created by Omala. Oof, even the name Omala transports you to a place of flow and vitality. These are some of my favorite products ever, like an amazing color-changing yoga mat that responds to your temperature and presence and reflects back your posture in real time. They have this incredible smelling skin balm candle that heats up to activate all the essential oils and vitamins that your skin has been craving for. I mean, look, if I could live in a giant bath of this candle, I would 100% do it. They also have these journals that lead you into a profound insight, and then you can plant those journals to create a stunning flower garden. I mean, damn, if that's not both deep and inventive, I don't know what is. If you're someone who desires to live in a luxurious flow of life and who believes in transformative wellness, then you have to check out Omala. Omala is giving my listeners an exclusive discount to treat yourself to something that is as special as you, boo. All you have to do is go to omala.com, that's O-M-A-L-A.com. Use the discount code DrScott10 at checkout. And a portion of every purchase goes to an incredible charity. You got this. Max, I brought you a little gift. We like to bring some gifts for our... Oh, so no. I, I think, you know, if you open it up and just share oh, what we've got Jesus. for you. Oh, my God. What is this? Dinosaur kale? It's a bouquet of kale. Thank you yes. very much. So that's your first gift. What am I going to do with this? I don't know. You tell us. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually... Kale is one of the best. So I actually... I like kale. A lot of people don't, but I think kale is a great food. It's one of the top sources of carotenoids, in particular lutein and zeaxanthin, which are really great for eye and brain health. So I'm a huge fan of kale. I mean, look at the pigment. There's like a ton of chlorophyll in here loaded with lutein and zeaxanthin. So I'm a fan. What else have we got? Oh, God. Okay, so you earned points with this. Uh-huh. Beyond beef? Yeah, isn't that your favorite? No. <laughs> what is this? What do you mean, what is this? Imitation beef? 
This I've, is crap. <laughs> I got the news that, that was your favorite snack Beyond food. Beef. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No. Oh gosh, we really got that mixed up. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate like I would like I wouldn't feed this to like if I had a dog. Like I wouldn't. Feed, it's not even worthy of being called like dog food, <laughs> even though the ingredients are very similar. Yeah, to dog food. Well, yeah, it's hard to distinguish. I once did like an Instagram post where oh. I put the ingredients of Beyond Meat uh-huh. up next to like dog kibble, but I didn't disclose like which was which. Yeah. Did and you have people sample both of them? They just like, they. my audience couldn't determine like which was which. Wow. Yeah. It's very similar. Very, very similar. Now look, this is like, if you're on a plant-based diet and you enjoy it, then have at it. Yeah. Right? Like I actually don't care what people eat. Like I think people should eat whatever the hell they want. Well, this is for you. Is it for me? Yeah. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. Maybe I'll give it to... Can you even eat it raw? Like, is it safe to eat raw? Like, what's... It's, it's, I, I'm pretty sure it's safe to eat raw. After water, the first two ingredients are pea protein and canola oil. So... Choices. Yeah. We got one more gift for you in there. One more gift. Unbelievable. Organic, dairy-free, fermented cashew product. Yeah. that We were also told you love cheese. Cheeseless cheese was... Did I mean, that this right? is not terrible. I mean, this I would eat. Oh, yeah? Yeah, this I would actually eat. It's like the first couple of ingredients are cashews, coconut oil, coconut milk, water, quinoa, nutritional yeast, which I'm a huge fan of. So, this isn't terrible. I would eat this, you know. But like, you know, I prefer real cheese. But like, I mean, this sounds pretty good. Cashews are, are great. Good source of prebiotic fiber, certain minerals. But yeah, the Beyond Meat is like... Uh, I love that you're deconstructing it. This was my transition into the topic of trolling. Yeah. <laughs> is that you're trolling me? This is us trolling you. This is definitely like... Ugh. I can see you're really disheartened by it. Well, it's not just that like I wouldn't want to eat this, but yeah. it's also that like real beef is so healthy compared... Like in comparison, like, mm. you know, and especially... Also, like, there are different grades of ground beef. Like, if you go to a fast food restaurant, your average fast food burger is made with, like, 70 to 75% lean, meaning it's, like, it's pretty fatty ground beef. But you can go to, I mean, at least at Whole Foods, you can buy 93% ground beef. And it's, like, it's primarily protein. It's loaded with, you know, great micronutrients. And so, yeah, so I don't know why. From a health standpoint, it makes zero sense to consume that compared to the ground beef. Yeah. But again, if you're a vegan and you want to taste something that in some way evokes what it might be like to eat a real burger, then, you know, enjoy your Beyond Meat. But from a health standpoint, <laughs> I just, for me, it's like yeah. helping people to make the best decisions with the full breadth of informed choice. That's yeah. what it is. You know, yeah. that's what's important to me. Yeah. You know. I think that's a very beautiful stance. Yeah. But I think adults should be able to do it wherever the hell they want. Yeah. Like, zealots in the nutrition space like vegan zealots in particular they feel very emotionally tied to other people's food choices right like if they see you know that you're like like they believe that omnivores are destroying the environment with their choices and they're torturing and enslaving animals you know with their every omnivorous you know food choice and so there's like this like i think overreach Mm. that is exhibited by that particular diet tribe and then you get i mean but and there's now there's multiple different diet tribes and they all kind of i don't care what people eat i just think people should make their choices with the full breadth of informed consent and yeah no i appreciate that. that's my mission i guess so speaking of trolling <laughs> where are we going to take this where are we going to take this yeah. you had brought it up earlier in the conversation that you had been trolled and it's like such an interesting subject matter from a psychological lens and we've talked about it before when i was on your show too mm-hmm. about the psychology of trolling. You mentioned before that you get trolled a few times. Yeah. Been, can you tell me a little about it? Well, I get trolled occasionally on social media Yeah, by these various diet tribes. I mean, at the end of the day, I think it's all in fun. Like, I don't actually, yeah. I don't actually think that social media is real life. It's not. Social media is not real life. When I'm not on social media, I spend 0% of my time thinking about people on social media. Yeah. You know? On the other hand, there are people on social media that spend seemingly all of their time thinking about other people on social media. And yeah, I yeah. think that's really weird. Yeah. And so, but yeah, I do get trolled. I mean, you know, first of all, you build a platform big enough, eventually you're going to get trolled. It's That's kind of par for the course, yeah. right? But particularly in my world, which is nutrition, everybody 
like people tend to adopt their dietary patterns as part of their identities. And mm-hmm. so when you present information that is threatening to their, destabilizing to their identity, then they tend to lash out. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I get a lot of trolls that are in the vegan diet tribe. I also occasionally get trolls in, from the carnivore side. You know, most recently I was on the Today Show and I did a segment all about, you know, prebiotic and probiotic foods. And because there was no, there were no animal products in the segment, carnivore dieters came over and was like, what's up with the lack of, you know, steak and eggs? And I'm like, well, that's not what the segment was about, guys, you know? But I think for the most part, it's vegans coming out, you know, against me because I like to promote omnivory. I think it's the Mm -hmm. ethical, responsible thing to do, particularly with regard to health. Like I don't – like my priorities one, two, and three are health, right? Like the health of myself, the health of my loved ones, and the health ultimately of my followers. And so I'm somebody who's definitely concerned about animal welfare and about the environment. But my primary concern is like individual health. Mm Mm-hmm. And so that's my vantage point. That's where like all the recommendations that I make come from. So vegans, you know, that doesn't really fly with vegans who, as I said, really care a lot, you know, and overinvest themselves in terms of like what other people are eating and advocating for. Yeah. And then I also get trolls from the academic side who feel threatened because, you know, I have a following where I talk about nutrition science, yet I didn't go through the traditional academic channels. And so there's like a small handful of like trolls that I get sometimes from that world, which is fine. It's all good, you know. I mean, I appreciate the relaxedness about it. And I even hear some empathy about why perhaps they're responding to you in that way. Yeah. Well, it's like if I had a dollar for every person that I've come across in academia with personality issues, we'll just say, I'd have, (laughs) you know, quite a bit of money. Yeah. You know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so inevitably, you're going to ruffle some feathers when you're talking about a topic that somebody went into severe student debt for and spent 10 years of their life studying. Mm. And I'm not to say that, that those people don't have any value, but a lot of them on social media, seemingly the value that they're offering is just coming out and trolling others. Yeah. And that's not my MO. Like if you follow me on social media, I mean, even talking about social media to me is so trite, it's so yeah. boring. But yeah, I never attack others. I never debunk others. That's mm. not my mission. Like I'm not here to react to what some idiot on social media is saying. Like I've got my vision set way higher than that. Yeah. And it's to be a helper. It's to help people understand the truth and to be a role model for people, I think, at the end of the day and to have conversations and to platform people that I think are actually adding yeah. You know, to the conversation in a productive way. Yeah. And so, yeah. So, like, I, I'll have fun with the trolls sometimes. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll troll back occasionally, but... You troll the trolls. Troll the trolls. Troll the trolls. Yeah, but it's not... Um, I don't know. It's like, it's really, I think... I try not to spend too much time yeah. on it. I really don't. Yeah. I troll myself. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> how, do you troll your, how do you troll yourself? Well, I just think, like... <laughs> You know, if there's anybody out there who can troll me, yeah, it's me, right? <laughs> like, yeah. I live with myself. Yeah, you know, so yeah, so yeah, making self-deprecating jokes is something that I think yeah. is like really fun to do, and I like to poke fun at myself. I don't take myself too seriously. Yeah. I don't really have a huge ego about what it is that I do. Like, yeah. I love what I do, so yeah. I have fun with it. And yeah, and you can't take yourself too seriously. Like, I don't ever, you know, many people have called me an expert over the years in various topics, and but I don't call myself that. And so... It sounds like it gives you some space to not have to be in the fight. Yeah, That's, I don't... That a lot of people... I mean, like, they're saying interesting, I was reading this study about like the nostalgia of trolling, mm. which is like the old school days of trolling was more like academic debates. And now it's become kind of like mean, harsh comments that are more of like a smack than actually an engagement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, again, didn't go through the academic channels, but yeah. one thing that I've, you know, subjectively seen is that there's a lot of like the personality type. Yeah. Like you're different based on my interactions with you. But a lot of the people who have gone through that, have taken that academic path, there is a lot of ego. Yeah. There's a lot of territorialism. There's a yeah. lot of, you know, there's a lot of like combativeness. It's part of, not the game, it's part of the process. You have to fight yeah. for your perspective. It's like a hyper-competitive yeah. environment, it's right? hyper-competitive. Yeah, in medical school, yeah. in academia. Yeah. And so I think it it attracts a certain personality type. Yeah. 
and then it further like foments, I think it can further foment like the more aggressive, you know, traits in a person that then you give that person a platform on social media and, you know, there's a lot of like negativity and I yeah. see that. You yeah. know, not not with everybody, but like you know, obviously with my platform and my podcast, like I've engaged with plenty of academics that are that are the opposite, and maybe there's like a selection bias there. Maybe those kinds of people gravitate to my work. So you know, whether it's medical doctors or PhDs or dietitians or what have you, like you know, I do have a very significant proportion of my population that actually is from the world of academia. Yeah. But then you just you see these personalities sometimes on social media that are also from that world that, yeah, I mean, there's like a lot of narcissism. There's a lot of like clout chasing. There's a lot of like just aggression that seems like it has no outlet but to kind of, you know, foment on social media. And yeah, it's not pleasant. So I try not to associate with those types. Yeah. I can, I can appreciate that. Yeah. And I catch wind of it here and there on social media. But again, it's like, I kind of just, you know, maybe I'll engage a little bit, but at the end of the day, I just end up chuckling and writing them off. Yeah. I mean, I've seen like, it sounds like you're doing both of what's actually suggested, which is really interesting. In the research, it's like, don't feed the trolls, which is like one message. And then make the trolls dance is the other message. Make the trolls dance. Yeah. And it's like these two sort of perspectives of research that are like, okay, do you give them the silent treatment, which is kind of a harsh perspective. Yeah. Like not saying something is saying something pretty strongly. Yeah. Or do you engage and be like, they say something and you say something back? Because there's this idea of like, one of the perspectives on trolling is there's a desire to win. Mm. And if you take away the win, you take away the fuel for the trolling, which is, you know, and if you take away the anonymity, you also yeah. take away a big protective mechanism that gives them the permission, quote unquote, to go make harsh comments, to go troll. Yeah. I'm, most of the time I will ignore, but occasionally if I think that there's like a misunderstanding and the person behind the profile seems like a reasonable, benevolent person. Yeah then I will actually reach out. And I've done this before. Mm. I've done this with people who would like talk shit about me. Yeah. And I've reached out and I would say, you know, through the DMs, hey, is there like a misunderstanding or Mm. have I said something specific that you want me to clarify for you? Mm -hmm. I'm happy to do that. And I've actually made like acquaintances, Mm. you know, through doing that where like people who like formerly might have like talked shit about me because they didn't know who I was or maybe they've seen a thin slice of something I've said and they wrote me off as being some like wellness influencer or some whatever. And I've actually, yeah, I've like won people over that way because I am reasonable. And if you really have something like a concern about something that I've said, I want to hear it. Yeah. Right. Like I'm not completely impervious to criticism and I don't ever want to be, right? Yeah. But the problem is a lot of these quote unquote haters aren't reasonable and they're not hating from a place of misunderstanding. They're hating from a place of, you know, maybe jealousy Mm -hmm. or maybe just the fact that like they're threatened by me, you Mm -hmm. know? And that exists. Like some just get a rise out of it. I mean, that's what it's interesting in the research. It's like sometimes it's just the thrill. Yeah. Which is wild. Yeah. That absolutely exists. And I think that there's, you know, it's important for people. There's two things. One, you should never take criticism from somebody that you wouldn't take advice from. You know, so a lot of these people mm. who who I think are like the critics on social media, like mm-hmm. you'd never want to take advice from those people. Yeah. You know, like like it doesn't take a stretch of the imagination to like go beyond to envision what's happening behind the profile you know just look at some of their content yeah and they're probably not happy right at the end of the day hurt people hurt people and like if all they're doing is like talking shit about others and they're probably not the happiest people like in their lives so just let them be and then so yeah so there's that and then so the other thing was that people generally don't criticize those who are less successful than them Mm. You know, they tend to criticize like people who are more successful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, if that's like all you're seeing is like, I don't pick fights on social media, but I do call things out, but I don't call out things being said or done by other social media content creators. Okay. That to me, I feel like is a fruitless endeavor. There's always gonna be another idiot on social media saying something stupid. Yeah. It's completely futile and fruitless. And I do feel like I'm above it. So I don't like to punch down. Yeah. I don't even like to punch laterally. Yeah. I'll punch up in the sense I'll punch at the government. Yeah. I'll punch at, you know, organizations that are 
you know, seemingly not operating despite the branding and the best interest of, for example, patients. Yeah. So that to me is something that I'm more than happy to do. You know, I'll punch up at the media. Yeah. But like it's punching. Like, like, so you're like the Robin Hood of wellness. That's what I, I mean, <laughs> look, like, I like I'm, again, I'm still a no, fallible like human, that. but yeah, yeah but yeah. I try to, that's kind of like my ethos. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Max, thank you so much for being on the Gently Used Human. You are so awesome. Thank you. Where the fuck can people find you? Oh, man. Well, definitely come over and listen to my podcast. It's called The Genius Life. And a great place to start is a conversation that we had Mm -hmm. on my show. It was phenomenal. I still get great feedback from that. I love that episode with you. It was so fun. To promote your book, that was incredible. And very active on Instagram, at Max Lugavir. And what about your books, buddy? Yeah, I always forget. (laughs) So I've got three books out, Genius Foods, The Genius Life, and Genius Kitchen. My most recent book, Genius Kitchen, it's a cookbook and wellness guide. And if you're visual, lots of great photos in it. There's shirtless ones of you, right? Me shirtless. Yeah. 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 I remember that's how it got Wall Street's... There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Top book. Shirtless. Actually, there are photos of me in my pajamas in the book. You got to sell a book somehow, my friend. Got to sell the book somehow. Yeah. We're all prostitutes for something, right? Something. Yeah. (laughs) For sure. Um, But thanks for having me. This was a joy. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Anytime. Thank you for listening to the Gently Used Human podcast with Dr. Scott Lyons and friends. Visit GentlyUse.com for fun extras, including submitting your questions for advice from a Midwestern mom. And don't forget to spill the tea and gossip about the show with all your friends and frenemies. And show some love by giving us five stars and leaving a review in your favorite apps. This helps us connect with all the other gently used humans out there. Oh, and by the way, you look fierce today.